Assistant Chief of uh, Nephrology will be presenting uh, Terry Strom in just a, a second. Um, it's, uh, it's been great to have you here, and also Philippe from uh, Haiti, who uh, have uh, informed lots of different projects and hopes and aspirations for us uh, in collaborating with, uh, with you and uh, learning from you. So, Brian? Well, thanks, and I, I hope to have uh, our friends from Hôpital University, Université de Mirabelle online. They're having some technical problems, so I'll work on that uh, after. But uh, it, it is a pleasure to have uh, two guests. This was kind of unexpected. I invited Terry a long time ago, back in September, and uh, Terry was my mentor in immunology, and, and, and I became sort of a transplant fellow early on with Terry, and, and it's been 10 years at least since we've really seen each other. and, and, and just wanted him to come back because uh, he's done so much work in transplantation. Um, in the inter interim, I've been working, you know, trying to get things going in Haiti for the, since the earthquake, and and it just happened that uh, I had been in France a year and a half ago and, and spoke, and uh, I got an email from somebody named Philippe Cleofad, <laughs> who said he was from Haiti and going back, and I and then. It turned out, he, so I got another email said, I'm back in Haiti. And I said, where are you? He said, I'm in Mirabelle. And I said, well, what are you doing there? He said, I'm chief of medicine at Mirabelle. And this was really uh, an eye opener because it, it, it was, it was a, a window for some of the work I've been trying to do there. And one of the things that was on the table was, could we imagine doing a kidney transplant at some time in the future? And so then when I realized that I have one of the best experts in the world in transplantation coming, and one of the people who needs transplantation, I thought, what a perfect match. So we've got a chance to put uh, our heads together and to, to be together for this period of time. Um, I wanted to start out, this is a painting that, that I, I, I hate. <laughs> and I'll tell you why I hate this painting. It's, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a science guy and not an art historian, so I'll, I'll, I think it's uh, Fields, I think, is that how you pronounce the name of the artist? Victorian painting done in 1887, very famous in the Tate Museum. It's shown up at every conference I've gone to on feel good about doctors and, and stuff. And um, so there's a doctor sitting next to the bed of this dying child. And I think this is supposed to be the epitome of what it's supposed to be a doctor. So that's a nice romantic view. Um, this is a screenshot of me in Haiti 10 days after the earthquake. Uh, this little girl. Uh, came into the emergency room, uh, probably five years old, with a perforated viscous. And I said to the doctor, this was in Hôpital Saint-Thérèse, I said, so appendicitis? He said, no, typhus. So a little girl who had uh, perforated her intestine from typhus with free air was in excruciating pain, taken to the operating room by uh, Kurt Reinhardt and uh, uh, bowel resection. This is her the next morning, NG tube in place. There's no pain medication in Haiti. She, her hands are tied to the bed to prevent her from pulling the tube out of her nose, and, and I'm sure she didn't survive. Um, so this is the real version of that romantic picture for me, and that's why I hate that painting. Uh, this goes on every day in Haiti. I think, uh, I think that uh, Philippe uh, Cleofat, who's the chief of medicine, knows everything to, there is to know about nephrology, and he spent, he, I'll just tell you his history briefly. He, he was from the faculty at University de Tatar Haiti and was uh, trained in Haiti and then went to, uh, uh, ended up in, in Europe training as a nephrologist and then came back now to take on this big job of being chief of medicine. So he, he understands the spectrum of what's possible, but every day is faced by the impossible. 
And, and I, I think that, uh, again, my fourth reason for hating that painting. So I think, I think that we, we this, this is uh, amazing to me that people can die of renal failure. And that was the other thing this week. This is uh, World Kidney Day yesterday. We're going to talk about tolerance and transplantation at a very high level and how we're achieving that. And yet people still are dying of renal failure one hour off the Florida coast. So our speaker today is Dr. Terry Strom. Terry, I, I'm just going to abbreviate this because I've already taken too long, but Terry is a, just a, trained in Illinois and then went to Boston and really took over the place in terms of transplantation. He, he trained uh, at the BI in his nephrology career, then was at the Brigham and became really the first transplant nephrologist and has trained a generation of transplant nephrologists. He's the Abelson uh, Chair of uh, Immunology. Uh, I had a wonderful time in his lab and he's trained virtually uh, all the important people in transplant in the country. Uh, and uh, it's just a pleasure to have him here today. And uh, he tells me he's going to help us figure out how to do this transplant in Haiti. Thank you for the kind invitation and uh, the ability to meet so many nice people. And uh, I'm uh, fully aware of the ridiculousness, uh, uh, particular poignancy about it, to be uh, in a session where I'm going to talk about what I think are realistic hopes for creating transplant tolerance at the same time Philippe is visiting. And uh, I'm reminded that if a 10-year-old infant, not infant, 10-year-old uh, gets uh, renal failure in Haiti, um, it's a death sentence. And, uh, um, and there's certainly something wrong in all this. Um, <clears throat> this, is, um, this is a photo of my mentors. Uh, John Merrill on the left, who uh, was uh, very uh, involved in the development of dialysis. Uh, the first, uh, first instrument for, doing, uh, for performing hemodialysis was designed by Wilhelm Kauf in Holland. <clears throat> he was a politically active uh, left-wing uh, individual, and uh, he spent most of World War II hiding from the Nazis, building a machine, uh, which he shared with the uh, uh, Carl Walter, a bioengineer physician at the Brigham. Um, the the instrument that they used was called the uh, the Brigham uh, uh, dialysis instrument. In reality, it was the uh, the Kauf uh, instrument. And uh, at the time that the first identical twin uh, transplant was done, as, as uh, Clay reminded us yesterday, 1954. Uh, the Brigham had, had established a means uh, to successfully perform dialysis for acute renal failure, but uh, the development's access to the vasculature were not yet developed, and it was not yet possible to do chronic hemodialysis and keep people alive. So the first identical twin uh, was done in the mid-1950s. The first successful, really, allo transplant was done in 1959 uh, with a, uh, a gruesome uh, therapeutic protocol of total body radiation. Most of the individuals who underwent this treatment uh, died from the consequences of radiation. Several years later, uh, the first uh, chemical immunosuppression was developed. On the right is uh, Joe Murray, who performed the first successful renal transplant, was rewarded uh, with the uh, Nobel Prize. Uh, and Joe is uh, just one of the nicest people I've ever met in my life and uh, accepted uh, the prize on behalf of what he said was the Brigham team. Uh, John Merrill died several years 
uh, before Joe was uh, awarded the uh, Nobel Prize, and it's entirely possible that they might have shared it. So one of the nice things in my life that I was able to study with these individuals and became uh, a junior faculty and maybe mid-level uh, mid faculty uh, appointment uh, working with uh, both of them until I moved virtually across the street to BIDMC several years later. So the, the, um, um, this is not the situation in Haiti, but the situation when, when I became medical director of the transplant program in the 70s was terrible by, by present day uh, circumstances. While the results for living donor, uh, HLA matched, in particular transplantation, were, were pretty good, uh, this hospital, the Brigham, along with uh, uh, hospitals in uh, uh, University of California in San Francisco, Minnesota, uh, were probably the largest American transplant centers. Results that I'm talking about here were considered pretty good. Uh, cadaver donor transplantation at this point, only 50% success rate. And the uh, mortality, first year mortality, was de deplorable. It was 20-25%. Uh, and it was, uh, 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 to some extent, a hidden secret. Very few people talked about it. Why was the mortality so terrible? Because we overtreated. We didn't understand uh, the limitations of our therapy. We didn't realize uh, that we couldn't repeatedly hammer somebody with huge doses, long courses of corticosteroids when they uh, did not respond. Uh, uh, to our treatments, so with uh, recurring rejection, unremitting rejection, we treated, 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 and uh, uh, this uh, was the uh, the consequence. Uh, you know, it's this is renal week, and uh, I think that we can all celebrate uh, the results uh, that uh, my institution achieved, which are probably not very different uh, than what was achieved here. At, at Dartmouth in the last uh, year, our, the success rate, one year success rate, is over 95%. Uh, mortality is tiny. Uh, the uh, uh, deaths from opportunistic infection, I, I doubt that we suffered one last year. So there has been a, a gratifying, steady improvement in, um, in our results, and it is uh, certainly celebratory and uh, uh, for this uh, reason, I mean truly lamentable uh, that the situation in Haiti is so dire. And I applaud Philippe and Brian for their efforts and uh, I'm sure that everybody here wishes them well. Now, <clears throat> why are we doing so much better? In addition to realizing the limitations of our therapy, we had very, very few drugs available in the, in the bad old days. Uh, essentially, we treated everybody with azathioprine and corticosteroids. If somebody had a rejection episode, we used huge amounts of corticosteroids over and over again. We had uh, pretty primitive preparations of anti-lymphocyte antibodies, which uh, some units used. We, we did not. But uh, as, as time went on, we had more possibilities. And uh, you know there are very few complicated illnesses that you can treat with a single drug. We don't treat uh, AIDS with a single drug. There are very few cancers we treat with a single drug. TB you don't treat with a single drug, so on and so forth. So as time went on, we were able to achieve certain synergies with uh, agents uh, that were immunosuppressive, uh, worked on different immune pathways, and had differing side effects. 
and uh, over, uh, um, you know, a huge improvement occurred with the development of calcineurin inhibitors, cyclosporin, and uh, shortly thereafter, tacrolimus. And you can, you can see uh, that the uh, in the yellow line, this is sex. Uh, the uh, success rate and volume of transplantation took off, and we have several more uh, new agents that we're able uh, to use. Uh, the advent of monoclonal antibodies uh, and uh, IG fusion proteins has uh, allowed us to use more effective biologics over time. So if we run into trouble uh, with uh, one set of drugs, we're able to switch to another, and uh, we're uh, not left treating rejection episode after rejection episode and putting our patients uh, in, uh, in uh, dire straits. And uh, things are, you know, things are remarkably better. Now, I, uh, the, the improvements that we have achieved with better immunosuppression could not have been achieved uh, without the development of prophylactic strategies for uh, infectious diseases. The, the agents that we use now are simply too powerful to be used in the in the absence of um, some of the manipulations that I'm going to talk about. So, in uh, when when we used uh, high doses uh, of steroids in the bad old days, uh, we used to frequently have uh, patients, often diabetics, who had a fever of 104. You examined them, and there was nothing wrong. You looked at the urine, took blood cultures, nothing wrong, and it took about a uh, a week on the service and the uh, surgical residents soon began to appreciate it was possible, maybe even likely, uh, that these patients uh, were hiding an abscess under their, uh, under their incision. But the huge doses of steroids that we used <clears throat> were uh, blocked all signs of inflammation. So we began using uh, prophylactic antibiotics, a, a strategy that we actually learned from dentists who were using prophylactic antibiotics uh, in patients who underwent surgery for rheumatic fever. Uh, soon uh, thereafter, Bob Rubin uh, had a, uh, an excellent idea. Our most common bacterial infection was urosepsis. We're doing a urologic procedure on immunosuppressed patients. And so uh, um, urologic uh, infection, almost always followed by, by septicemia, was a very, very common side effect. So we gave Bactrim, and we treated urosepsis successfully. Now, in these old days, PCP was a big problem, and PCP disappeared uh, from our patient population with the advent of, uh, of Bactrim. I mean, this uh, fact was rediscovered. Uh, in treating uh, AIDS patients, but it was like a miracle that uh, this uh, provision helped. A question that came up yesterday in discussion about some, some of our patients, because CMV is so ubiquitous, it's very, very uh, common uh, that our patients carry uh, CMV or worse, don't carry CMV and be exposed for the first time from the donor under situations of very heavy immunosuppression. And so it, it uh, became and remains very important to use prophylactic strategies, imperfect though they are. Uh, this is uh, the situation that we face today is nothing uh, like uh, like uh, the uh, the problems we had in in uh, days of your hepatitis virus, particularly hepatitis C. Certainly a huge problem in liver transplantation. It can be a problem in our patients as well, and um, so we have very very. Uh, successful strategies for a number of opportunistic infections that used to bedevil uh, our patients. 
there's certainly unmet needs. Uh, transplant patients uh, are, are prone to develop a lymphoproliferative uh, disorder that on occasion with a, uh, a mutation in B cells can become very difficult to treat, uh, B cell uh, malignancy. And uh, EBV immortalizes B cells. This is a virally driven disease. It's not a surprise uh, that a virally Induced uh, malignancy is a problem in transplantation. There, there are uh, other viral problems with malignancies that I'll get to in a minute, but we could use better drugs for EBV. There's a polyoma virus, BK virus, that infects the kidney. Uh, you've never seen anybody in your practices who has a problem uh, with this infection, but we do uh, because we treat with immunosuppression. Uh, the, uh, uh, the virus uh, proliferates in the kidney, causes a cell-mediated immune reaction, which is not altogether easy to distinguish by conventional pathology from rejection. We have no new good drugs, and the only way that we can treat successfully is actually reduce the tempo of immunosuppression in hope for the best. So this, uh, this remains uh, an, an important problem. Now. Um, the the uh, the, six, the success rate that we have presently is is uh, phenomenal. I, I thought through uh, much of my career I should have to pay admission uh, to go into the clinic because you had patients who were in a terrible state of health. This is particularly true at the beginning of my career, where dialysis is not as refined as it is today. But as Clay reminded us, the mortality for dialysis patients <clears throat> is uh, not comparable to the extremely low mortality seen in, in, uh, in transplant patients. So uh, that uh, to see patients get rehabilitated uh, markedly from the, the circumstances uh, that they suffered with before transplantation to be taken uh, into a, a robust uh, state of health is uh, certainly, uh, almost certainly, the most significant uh, joy of uh, my uh, long career in this, uh, in this area. So while we're doing much better, uh, transplants don't seem to be immortal. Um, they, they, uh, kidney transplants uh, in particular, uh, rarely uh, do patients withdraw from therapy and uh, I get to talk about it five years later. Well, I, I uh, beat the odds and I'm not taking immunosuppression. The usual story is that patients lose their kidney. This is not always the case with some other transplants, as I'll talk about in a minute, but with uh, kidney transplantation, it's true uh, that uh, currently lifelong therapy is required. We don't have biomarkers. If I had a tolerant patient in the clinic sitting across the uh, table from me, I wouldn't know who that patient is. We simply don't know. And our strategy currently is to use a lot of medicines in the beginning uh, when the risk of rejection is high taper, watch, watch, taper until, uh, you know, large studies suggest uh, that you can go this far and perhaps not, uh, not further. Uh, discussions yesterday with uh, David Axelrod told uh, uh, um, me about his strategy for dose minimization. It's as, it's as good as it gets, but, but if you stop medications um, to zero, bad things happen in our patients. Lifelong immunosuppression is required. And uh, what's the uh, cost of uh, this current uh, circumstance? One, transplants are not immortal. They, they all, virtually all of them are, are lost. 
over time in this very, very long period of immunosuppression heightens the risk of cancer over time, such that at 20 years post-transplantation, 50% of our patients experience a malignancy. Now, many of the malignancies are, are skin cancer, and uh, a lot of them are squamous cell. And uh, you'll tell me, well, squamous cell isn't so bad. Well, the story in transplantation is quite different uh, than in the rest of uh, the population. And patients die of uh, squamous cell cancer. Patients die of a variety uh, of malignancies. Some of them are you know, uh, totally uh, idiosyncratic uh, to immunosuppression, the B-cell malignancy. But virtually every, you take a list of all the malignancies that happen in the general population, and they're a bit heightened in transplant patients, some of them more markedly, particularly those uh, that are, have been linked to um, either sunlight, a strange mix, uh, where, where the uh, incidence of squamous cell is, is up for sure, but so is melanoma. And uh, it's a, uh, uh, so there, there, uh, there remain issues. Moreover, our linchpin medicine, kidney transplantation, we treat it with nephrotoxins. And uh, uh, calcineurin inhibitors are, are nephrotoxins. And the, the long-term failure, these patients uh, uh, often uh, lose kidneys under circumstances in which pathology is not totally revealing, where, where surveillance biopsies are, are, are not done, they're, uh, they can't be billed for, they're, they're uh, uh, cumbersome, so on and so forth, and, and uh, as patients lose function, we see fibrotic kidneys and uh, don't really know how they got there. I mean, one of the likely causes, I mean, the causes certainly include drug-related toxicity. Heart transplant patients have a heightened incidence of kidney failure. They take the same drugs, uh, they're nephrotoxins, and uh, probably for this reason, there's a surprisingly high incidence of kidney failure in heart transplant patients. Other possibilities include uh, subtle forms of rejection that uh, slip under our, uh, our uh, radar and become uh, manifest and uh, apparent on biopsies only after uh, intense scarring has occurred. So we have uh, uh, a lot to celebrate. We have some unmet uh, problems. Now, one of the ways uh, to try to deal with the problem, and as a, uh, uh, a, uh, a part-time clinician and a part-time researcher, and it's uh, uh, very attractive to pursue uh, you know, the holy grail of transplantation, uh, transplant tolerance. And uh, some people say uh, tolerance is the future of transplantation and will always be that. Uh, I'm a bit more optimistic that uh, uh, we have tools at hand uh, that will help us uh, get uh, at least some of our patients uh, off of long-term immunosuppression. Now, the immune response uh, to a transplant includes the activation of, of naive T cells. They're stimulated by uh, uh, antigen-presenting cells within the uh, donor organ, macrophages, uh, monocytes, dendritic cells, and the like. And the, the immune response uh, has, has both a uh, attack element would affect their T cells or conventional T cells when they uh, recognize donor antigen cells uh, that fall into this format can attack and destroy the transplant. 
And uh, uh, even if rejection episodes are, are aborted, uh, once you have this kind of activation, you can maintain memory cells uh, in your, uh, uh, within your immune cells. These are cells that are very, very hard to treat by conventional immunosuppression, raise risk for problems down the road. In addition, uh, 10%, approximately 5 to 10% of uh, our circulating helper T cells, CD4 cells, uh, protect rather than attack. They've been called regulatory T cells. They're also antigen specific. And uh, there are loads of uh, 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 investigations uh, which uh, show that a, uh, um, uh, a robust uh, ratio of uh, donor uh, selective uh, regulatory cells to effective cells uh, enables in, an, in a variety of uh, circumstances, both transplantation and autoimmune circumstance, uh, to withdraw the medications and uh, a state of donor-specific or antigen-specific tolerance ensues. And um, this is the kind of cheesy diagram that people like myself use. I'm sure that Randy has has one in his cassette, so that uh, in, a, in a very simple way, uh, that if the donor-specific effector cells, if you have a lot of them and don't have enough regulatory T cells, you get rejection. There are both effector and regulatory cells in every response to a transplant. It isn't, uh, these are never pure or rarely pure. On the other hand, if you do something that is uh, simply so splendid that you have an enduring uh, supremacy of regulatory cells to effector T cells, uh, you can withdraw treatment and uh, long-term uh, engraftment ensues despite uh, the fact that uh, treatment has been totally withdrawn. So this is, uh, this is our, our, our goal. And uh, what's wrong with what we do now? Well, what we do now is great. I mean, our patients, 90-some-odd, uh, 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 one-year success rate, uh, durability of these transplants varies depending on uh, the source, but uh, over 10 years for cadaver transplants is common. Living donor transplants go uh, much, uh, much uh, longer. But uh, you, it's, it's difficult in many circumstances in kidney transplantation and heart transplantation in particular to withdraw all these medications and see the, uh, the uh, uh, graft survive forever. How can that be? Because the medicines that we use, corticosteroids, calcineurin inhibitors, don't distinguish between their ability to suppress cells that attack and cells that protect the transplant. They, they suppress both. And so when you withdraw therapy, if you have done this in an intense way, you're back at the beginning, it's go. Uh, you have kind of the, uh, the mix of attacking and regulatory T cells uh, that you started with. So this is a very uncertain strategy uh, for trying to obtain tolerance unless you have biomarkers uh, that suggest that this patient is home free and you can withdraw medicine. But uh, this, uh, this uh, circumstance is probably not the best way to, to obtain tolerance when, uh, when the medicines that you use have equal potency in suppressing both the regulatory and attacking arms. So the failure to have rejection is not synonymous with tolerance or almost tolerance. It, it, uh, it's just not true. 
So why? Uh, so I'm interested in, uh, in in achieving tolerance. I'd like to think that I'm not a white. Uh, collar criminal, uh, that uh, I, I'm not interested in putting my patients at undue risk. Um, but um, uh, if we could succeed, I think that everybody would agree with this, it should be a good thing. I mean, you should reduce uh, infectious complications, reduce cancer risk, and uh, avoid uh, the uh, uh, problems with the pharmaceuticals that we use, in particular, the, but not limited to the calcineurin inhibitors, and prevent graft loss. And uh, as Clay uh, very uh, poignantly showed uh, yesterday, we have a long way to go uh, to obtain enough transplants to uh, fulfill the need uh, that we have in, in, in medicine. If, if these transplants lasted longer and uh, uh, you know, something phenomenal happened, they lasted forever, that would be a great thing, not only for these individual patients, for the cohort of patients who are waiting transplants, because we just are not even close to being able to transplant all those who uh, would uh, profit from uh, uh, a transplanted organ. Now, a strategy <clears throat> that uh, I would like uh, to discuss, and uh, I'm going to talk about it in, in several arms. I think I'm going to talk about it less than I thought I was going to talk about it. But uh, uh, an important aspect, uh, I think, of uh, T cell biology is that uh, a, a naive T cells, when it sees antigen, can, um, uh, can develop one of several molecular and functional programs. It can become a very aggressive pro-inflammatory T cell, and uh, the most inflammatory of the uh, of this particular family we call Th1 cells. We know that there are a lot of them in rejection. Uh, another group of uh, of T cells we call Th17 cells. They're even more pro-inflammatory. Their role in transplantation is somewhat uncertain, but these are very very important cells in autoimmunity and their, their importance in a variety of human autoimmune states, including type 1 diabetes and uh, uh, multiple sclerosis and psoriasis is now well known. So how does a cell become a Th1 cell, a Th17 cell? Th2 cells are very important in allergy in the response to uh, protozoa. There's also, as I said before, there are also regulatory cells, cells that can recognize an antigen or an organ and instead of attack it, protect it. Now, how do, how do cells decide which one of these functional and molecular programs to assume? They, they take cues from the environment. In a sense, inflammation instructs T cells, be aggressive, be really aggressive, or be protective. And the same antigen, the same T cell, if it recognizes uh, uh, antigen in a particular um, a molecule made by activated monocytes is present, IL-12, uh, it's called, these cells become Th1 cells. These are angry T cells, are very important uh, in, uh, in uh, a variety of host defense mechanisms. You don't want T cells recognizing a transplant to a, uh, uh, go into this mode. Th2 um, cells, these cells that are very important in allergy, and uh, the, the circumstance that I'm talking about now is being exploited now with uh, uh, new drug discovery programs and implementation programs. But if uh, a T cell, previously naive, 
uh, T cell recognizes antigen, and there's a lot of uh, a cytokine called IL-4, another one called IL-5. They become Th2 cells, and an allergic response ensues. Um, now, it turns out that the cytokine TGF transforming growth factor beta is made constitutively. It's there all the time. And uh, if uh, in the presence, either the experiments that I'm talking about now or in vitro experiments that I performed with Fiji Kushru a few years ago, uh, that uh, if you activate T cells in a test tube, but the same phenomena goes on in vivo in the presence of TGF beta, and you add a pro-inflammatory cytokine, IL-6, for example, the cell becomes a very, very profoundly pro-inflammatory cell. Uh, what's special about IL-6? Well, IL-6 is, in, in, for example, in the context of transplantation, ischemia reperfusion injury consistently uh, elicits a very, very strong release of IL-6. So uh, I think that one of the uh, fundamental problems that uh, uh, could be solved, needs to be solved in transplantation is a better way of dealing with ischemia reperfusion injury. Every one of our transplants, particularly cadaver transplants, has ischemia reperfusion injury. We have a special jargon if uh, the transplant requires hemodialysis for a period of time before it is able to function on its own. We call it delayed graft function. It's you know, acute kidney injury, ATM, and it's just an extreme form of this. But every, uh, and we've, we've, we and others have done studies to look at this, every cadaver transplant at the time of transplantation makes a lot of IL-6, and this production lasts a very long time. It's not a good thing. And uh, you get uh, very, very virulent uh, T cells. If, on the other hand, that there are no inflammatory cytokines and T cells see an antigen transplant or autoimmune or whatever, and there's only TGF beta around and there's not a lot of pro-inflammatory molecules, what does the T cell do? It becomes protective. So a strategy that I think, and, uh, um, and working on both in, uh, in uh, mice and in monkeys, uh, to try and achieve tolerance for autoimmunity and transplantation is a strategy that doesn't prevent the T cell from seeing the antigen. It's almost impossible. There's so many transplant antigens. We talk about HLA, but there are many, many minor antigens. And you're, you're just not going to prevent a T cell from seeing the antigen. But if it sees antigen in the presence of TGF beta, it becomes very protective. And uh, it's, it's clear in mice, it's clear in, uh, in monkeys, and it's becoming clearer in people uh, that this is a circumstance that will give rise to tolerance. So I'm interested in ways uh, to uh, foster or to groom inflammation in a, in a manner that looks like this and doesn't look like any of, of, uh, of these situations. Now, how might this uh, be done? There are, there are many possibilities. And, um, um, and at least in, in experimental situations, what I'm, what I'm drawing here seems to be true. If, if you try uh, to tame T cells in a highly inflamed uh, environment, it's difficult. You can tame them with broad, powerful immunosuppression, but it's very, very difficult to achieve tolerance. 
if, uh, on, the, on the other hand, uh, T cells see a foreign uh, antigen in the, in the lack of uh, pro-inflammatory cytokines, it, uh, it's actually not very hard to create a, a lot of regulatory T cells and uh, achieve tolerance. So what, what are some of the strategies? Uh, one of them is to just outweigh inflammation, that the intergraft inflammation uh, subsides over time. Uh, we've done time-lapse photography with, uh, with uh, genome-wide arrays in, in both mice and in monkeys, and to my surprise, that after a kidney transplant in a monkey, the, it, it actually takes six months uh, for the uh, uh, increased uh, release of pro-inflammatory cytokines, including IL-6 and TNF-alpha, to, uh, to abate. And uh, so one of the strategies um, that my uh, collaborators use both clinically and in primate models is an attempt to achieve uh, mixed chimerism, a very, very aggressive uh, strategy. Uh, and uh, they, they have six, uh, this is my collaborators at the MGH, David Sachs, Ben Kasimi and their, and their colleagues. And uh, so uh, in, in, in a collaboration where we looked at uh, how long it takes for these cytokines to go away, instead of trying to use tolerance at the beginning of uh, the, the transplant cycle, we waited six months. They used their same strategy, and a, a huge number of monkeys uh, became, uh, became tolerant, a much more successful strategy than they have ever uh, seen before, and this is a, a tactic that is uh, will be uh, rolled out into the clinic. There was a paper published on this topic last year by uh, one of the members of of this team. So uh, uh, another another uh, potential opportunity are to use strategies like those that are currently being used at uh, Dartmouth to uh, uh, whittle away at the immunosuppressive protocol. Over time, patients who are on low doses of immunosuppression, um, it's, it's not possible currently to take kidney transplants off of all medications at this point in time and see them walk away for years with good kidney transplant function. But this might be an opportunity to try and tolerate them at that moment in time, to wait for the um, adverse inflammation to go away. Uh, the good cytokine, TGF-beta, uh, will, will uh, be expressed uh, throughout this period of time. And so a uh, potential strategy in, in transplantation is treat by conventional measures at first, uh, wait uh, until uh, the coast is clear, and uh, try to use uh, some sort of tolerizing strategy at a later moment in time. Now, there is one transplant that, uh, in, in, in which uh, there's a surprising success at being able to eliminate immunosuppressive therapy. It's been known for a very long time uh, that the liver is somewhat special. Uh, in, uh, in rodents, you can take across very, very uh, strong uh, uh, MHC barriers. Uh, sometimes you can't get rejection for uh, 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 many strains for rat or mouse uh, liver transplants. Well, the situation in man is not, is not nearly as beneficent but it is true uh, that patients who've had uh, very good uh, uh, liver transplant function over long periods of time, uh, that uh, attempts have been 
made to try and withdraw medications. It's, uh, it's not as dicey as you might think because there are a lot of spare parts with the liver. And so they withdraw therapy, look by conventional measures for rejection. If they uh, see rejection, they uh, restore uh, full immunosuppressive therapy, and the outcomes are surprisingly good. But uh, there are a, a, quite a number of patients that have, can be withdrawn from therapy. More recently, these patients can be identified. And uh, they've been uh, identified uh, by uh, um, um, uh, genomic array type assays. Uh, the investigator is Alberto Sanchez Fueo. He's a former student uh, of mine, and he is now a professor of uh, medicine at, uh, at uh, King's College in, uh, in the UK. It's the Europe's largest liver transplant program. And so Alberto can uh, identify patients before an attempt is made to withdraw therapy, and uh, he is uh, nearly perfect at being able to say this one can come off of therapy, that one can't. Interestingly, this molecular signature for rejection or for tolerance increases with time post-transplantation. Uh, but there's still a number of patients in whom uh, you cannot withdraw withdraw therapy. I mean, the, the, the honest uh, answer is most of them can still not be withdrawn. So one strategy for chilling inflammation in transplantation, just wait a long time. Another strategy that we have been looking at is the use of uh, alpha-1 antitrypsin. And uh, uh, the, the short-winded version of alpha-1 antitrypsin, uh, in, in my view, it's a mechanism nature uses to chill unwanted, overwrought, uh, prolonged inflammation. Alpha-1 antitrypsin is uh, made by the liver. Uh, we all have it in our bloodstream. If you have uh, a bout of inflammation, inflammatory cytokines instruct the liver to make four or five times more of this uh, molecule. Uh, we've looked at its uh, activities as an anti-inflammatory agent in a number of settings. And uh, among other things, it blocks the NF-kappa-B pathway. Also, interestingly, it has modest effects as an antithrombotic and uh, as a, a, an agent that uh, diminishes complement activation. What happens uh, in the uh, unfortunate circumstance where an individual is born with a genetic defect? Um, uh, absent treatment, these individuals all, all, almost all die in their teens and 20s. Uh, due to the consequences of unopposed inflammation, primarily uh, in, the, uh, in the lung. So we have begun to use this in a variety of autoimmune circumstances and in transplantation. We have a, a trial uh, ongoing right now in nuance of type 1 diabetes. And uh, uh, there is uh, uh, interesting light at the end of the, uh, the tunnel. It's a preliminary study, only 16 patients, but it looks like it does have therapeutic effects in, uh, in this particular uh, system. So we're, 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 we have been using this in uh, transplantation and, and uh, in animal models, rather than outweigh inflammation, we try to uh, chill inflammation at the onset uh, by uh, infusing this agent, which uh, I, I, I should add, uh, its record uh, in terms of safety has been adjudicated outside of albumin to be the most uh, safe treatment of any protein ever administered to humans. It's uh, available. Uh, it's uh, FDA approved as a replacement therapy. Certainly, it's not been FDA approved for the circumstances in which we're testing it. 
So one tolerance uh, in, in uh, inducing strategy uh, you know, is, is to wait, outweigh inflammation. The other is to treat it with agents that block the production of inflammatory, but I should have <coughs> not anti-inflammatory cytokines. So there are a variety of anti-inflammatory cytokines, including TGF-beta, uh, in the use of alpha-1 antitrypsin doesn't touch the expression of uh, TGF-beta, uh, IL-10, IL-1 receptor antagonist, but does dramatic things to TNF, to IL-6, IL-1, and the NF-kappa-B pathway. And uh, step two is to alter the balance of uh, regulatory to effective T cells through other means. And uh, I've had a longstanding collaboration with Randy Noel. Uh, the uh, uh, possibility of uh, blocking uh, T cell activation through one form of post-stimulation blockade. I've led for those in transplantation familiar with the use of bilatisept. Bilatisept is not a rival in strength for the, uh, for the uh, uh, pathway that uh, Randy uh, has uh, blocked in the past and proposes to block even more safely in the near future. Randy just told me we'll have, uh, we'll have uh, his reagent uh, available to test in monkeys perhaps in two months. And so one, one opportunity is to block certain forms of co-stimulation blockade. And uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about the use of IL-2 as uh, 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 somewhat, perhaps somewhat surprisingly, as an immunosuppressive agent. IL-2 has a long history at Dartmouth. Uh, the, uh, uh, perhaps when the, the molecule became uh, first recognized and characterized, uh, the leading investigator in the world was Kendall Smith, who spent many years here studying interleukin-2. He's now at, uh, at Cornell, but his, uh, his work on, uh, on this molecule is uh, remarkable. This was the first of a family of T cell growth factors uh, to be recognized. And uh, this is a, uh, uh, a cartoon showing the receptor structure of the various T cell growth factors. Uh, IL-2 uh, is uh, shown here. And as you can see that the IL-2 receptor, at least the, the most avid, the highest affinity IL-2 receptor has three proteins, a common gamma chain, which is a signaling element for all of the T cell growth factor receptors, and it has two other, other chains. So the trimolecular form of this receptor has an affinity of 10 to the minus 11th molar. Important in this, regulatory cells are notable for their very high expression of all three of these proteins. Now, there are a lot of uh, inflammatory cells that have IL-2 receptors, but the receptors on these cells includes two, but not the third chain. And uh, you can activate um, inflammatory cells with high doses of IL-2 because the receptor has a much, much uh, lower affinity, 10 to the minus 9th molar. So, Perhaps you're aware of clinical studies in, in kidney cancer in particular, where people have tried to use immunotherapy, high doses of IL-2. They stimulate a very, very powerful inflammatory response. Patients get sick. Sometimes the uh, cancers are, are treated and go in remission for a short period of time. So in, in my view, and if Kendall were here, he would say the same thing. If you want to stimulate regulatory cells, the trick is to use very, very low doses of IL-2 that don't get near the concentrations required to um, 
activate inflammatory cells. And um, um, so IL, IL2 to regulatory cells shores up their viability, causes them to proliferate, makes them express molecules uh, that are uh, uh, death, uh, that guard against death. Their 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 life versus death kind of genes are tilted highly towards uh, cytoprotective genes in the presence of low doses of IL-2. Again, high doses of IL-2. Uh, perhaps many of you have seen it in, in uh, your clinical practices or or heard about it in your patients. It is a very very difficult strategy. <coughs> Okay, so we had uh, we had hypothesized uh, that in transplantation, by keeping the doses uh, uh, toward this low end of the spectrum, we could achieve very good things in transplantation and uh, in autoimmunity. And we jerry-rigged the molecule a bit. We wanted to avoid peak and valley concentrations that are inherent when you use short-lived proteins. IL-2 uh, circulation is minutes, uh, so we we linked uh, the protein genetically to I, uh, immunoglobulin heavy chains. Uh, IgG is the longest lived protein uh, known. And so instead of an IL-2 that circulates for minutes, you produce an IL-2 that circulates for days. And you can keep uh, doses uh, rather constant. And we've had uh, uh, really very exciting uh, results in both autoimmune and transplant models. So uh, the, there's uh, a long-lived uh, IL-2 is not currently available. Uh, studies in our lab and several others have indicated that IL-2 is synergistic with uh, an immunosuppressant commonly used in transplantation, rapamycin or sirolimus. Uh, the uh, reasons for this synergy are, are, are known, exotic, and I'm not going to discuss them. Uh, recently, although a long-lived IL-2 is not available, people have taken great pains to use rather low doses of IL-2 in very difficult clinical circumstances to try and gain tolerance. And uh, the, the results, in my view, are very exciting. I'm going to call attention to two papers that were published in uh, December 2012 in the New England Journal of Medicine. One of the studies came from... Uh, uh, from uh, Boston, the Farber, the Brigham, BIDMC, a group of patients uh, with bone marrow transplantation suffering from drug-resistant, drug-insensitive uh, GVH, very, very critical, awful circumstance, life-threatening and, uh, and uh, painful and uh, nasty, were treated with low doses of IL-2. In half of the patients, uh, they were able uh, to uh, successfully treat and uh, for very long periods of time, obtain uh, remissions of uh, GVH. There's another group of patients studied in Paris mm -hmm. with a vasculitis that was induced by hepatitis virus, similar doses of IL-2, same effect, uh, that they were able to achieve very, very long-lived uh, remissions of a uh, quite difficult to treat autoimmune disease. So in, in, uh, uh, in, in short, uh, our, our uh, strategies uh, that uh, uh, we're, we're testing are outliving uh, uh, inflammation or um, uh, chilling inflammation with alpha-1 antitrypsin and trying to, to use it with uh, uh, agents such as, uh, as 
Cyril Lemus. Now, I, while I think that it would be unethical to try and get kidney transplant patients off of treatment with a strategy like this, I think that there are certain circumstances where the strategy might be tested. And first amongst them, uh, I believe, uh, are uh, limb transplants. So the, the, um, the uh, uh, unfortunately, I mean, this shows a man who is uh, uh, probably not a, a so-called wounded warrior, but uh, they're, they're uh, with the uh, mines uh, um, that have uh, bedeviled uh, the, the lives of uh, our soldiers in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, there's a large uh, number of individuals who've uh, suffered the loss of limbs. And uh, un unlike, uh, unlike this gentleman, they're, they're young people. And um, um, hand transplants, the surgery for uh, this, uh, uh, this form of transplantation has come a long way. And this, uh, this can be done by skilled teams of uh, surgeons in, uh, in, quite a, in quite a number of centers. And um, the, the um, uh, Department of Defense, who's paid for the care of these patients, doesn't want them on lifelong immunosuppressive therapy. They say that if a soldier uh, uh, suffers this kind of devastating injury as a young man uh, or a young woman, uh, it's simply not justified to take immunosuppression for decades and decades. Uh, hearkening back to the slide that I showed at the beginning, over a period of time, the incidence of cancer goes up, 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 up. I mean, Lord knows what it will be at 30 and 40 years. So they want. Uh, uh, to see uh, these patients safely withdrawn from therapy or uh, disband this procedure altogether and rely on prosthetic limbs. And uh, they view the use of prosthetic limbs, and I would agree with this, as uh, superior to transplantation under these circumstances. So we are uh, initiating a trial. Uh, this uh, will be done at the Brigham uh, with a, a very uh, skilled group and what's interesting uh, to me uh, about uh, the limb tr transplants or the, the uh, uh, kidney transplantation, how do we make a diagnosis of rejection? It, it is a kind of antediluvian. We monitor the patient. We see the creatinine go up. And if the creatinine goes up, we take a look and make sure that they're not some simple factors. A lot of our patients are diabetic. They're very prone to dehydration. So the creatinine goes up. and we may give some saline and uh, uh, to see if we can rectify uh, pre-renal uh, elements that cause uh, azotemia. And it, it does. But the creatinine goes up a, a modest amount, 1.2 to 1.4. And we say to ourselves, is this real? I don't know. We ought to wait longer. And we do wait longer. And it goes up to 1.5, and the same discussion is held. It goes up to 1.6 and 1.7. Whoops, we better get a biopsy needle. We make the diagnosis of rejection very late. And a lot of GFRs lost. Uh, these transplants, they have a, a rash uh, that's apparent. You biopsy it, you get the answer back the next day. Uh, and the diagnosis of rejection can be made very promptly. As a consequence, you do not have a lot of memory cells after a rejection episode. Some of these patients, they have not lost uh, a patient to rejection at the Brigham yet. And these patients often have five or six rejection episodes. 
five or six rejection episodes in a kidney transplant patient. I mean, forget about it. I mean, that, that transplant is cooked. And, uh, and uh, they, they, despite this high incidence of rejection, over time, probably with the abatement, well, my, my religiosity says it's with the abatement of long-term inflammation, they go lower and lower and lower with their immunosuppression, get them on very, very low doses. So the strategy will be to outweigh inflammation to try and give them a bridge therapy, including interleukin-2 and rapamycin, to see if we can get them off of treatment. I tell myself, and I hope that I'm not self-delusional in this, uh, that it's okay because the diagnosis of rejection can be made so promptly, and if we make a mistake, we'll discover it and put them back on conventional therapy. That's our strategy. Uh, another uh, potential strategy would, would, would involve uh, liver transplant patients, who many of whom seem to be on the cusp of tolerance because they've tolerated their transplant for a very long time, but the molecular signature of tolerance is not present, and uh, we'll try to get them over the hump by giving them uh, things like interleukin-2 and alpha-1 antitrypsin, and this is a study that's going to be done uh, in collaboration with my, my friend and colleague in, uh, in uh, London, and we'll use patients from uh, the Harvard Teaching Hospitals to do this. So the, the uh, uh, I, I've not done a single experiment on the list of uh, things that I talk about. The people who have done the heavy lifting are here. I have a very healthy uh, uh, collaboration and strong friendship with Randy uh, in this effort. Hope to see it go forward. and. Uh, Thank you so much for uh, uh, hearing me. Uh, you're, you're, you're absolutely right, and uh, um, uh, this is a strategy that, it, that is being used experimentally by a number of people, not me. And uh, I, I, I prefer uh, alpha-1 antitrypsin be, be, because of the multiplicity of cytokines that it hits in, in, in the feeling that the, uh, uh, the strongest known inflammatory pathway is activation of NF-kappa B. And, uh, the, the cytokines that, that you have mentioned quite correctly as cytokines of great interest, uh, activation causes activation of NF-kappa B. It's one of these pathways that there are many ways, many side roads into the main highway. And uh, I think as a matter of uh, potential convenience and parsimony uh, that this uh, may be a good way to do it. Your, your way is a good way, needs to be tested. It is being tested by many other laboratories. Uh, and uh, I think we're on the same, same line of reasoning. So I'm wondering, uh, how extensive is the signature of liver tolerance, and how narrow can you get it? 
Oh, it's, 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 you don't need a raise to do it. So the original studies were done with a raise, and uh, Alberto uses a, a simple uh, uh, PCR profiling, uh, uh, profiling uh, pa a pathway. It, and I'd be happy to share the, uh, uh, the it's all published work, and, uh, and uh, talk to Brian, get my email address, and I'll, 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 I'll send you the articles. It's, it's not out of the realm of, uh, of practicality. I'm, I'm sure that it can be done at Dartmouth. Houston, we've made connections with me, so Brian, can you... Uh... Sorry, I just uh, wanted to... Really, I don't know if you can open your microphone. Say hello. This is uh, Philippe's uh, team from the University uh, from, from uh, Mirabale, from Italian University of Mirabale. Uh, they got in a little late, but... Uh... Yeah, I, I have uh, great respect. Uh, for what you're uh, for what you're trying to do, and uh, I, um, <clears throat> you know, my 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 only uh, my only regret as a uh, a nephrologist with a long-standing interest in transplantation is, is that um, um, uh, that it hasn't been possible uh, to embark on effective ways to treat end-stage renal disease yet in in Haiti, and uh, I'm very very hopeful that the collaboration. Uh, that you've established uh, with with Brian will be uh, a catalyst uh, for uh, development of agents that will help uh, people well deserving of uh, of modern treatment. And I applaud your efforts. If you make so, so in this whole effort with tolerance, if you succeed, what are the potential effects to the host themselves and their ability uh, immunize to deal with other stressors? Well, the, the uh, tolerance is antigen specific. Okay. So the, 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 principal, the principal problem uh, is um, uh, that if somebody has an active infection, while you try and generate tolerance, you'll do that. So, uh, you know, of course, uh, one of the principal things that uh, we, we do in evaluating patients for transplantation, you don't want to treat a patient with active TB, so on and so forth. So I think that the, uh, uh, it does mean uh, that uh, efforts to really um, more intensively work up uh, your potential donors and recipients are very, very important, an awful way. Uh, to be introduced uh, to a microbe is when the recipient has never been uh, immunized and the, uh, the donor carries uh, some menacing microbe. That's terrible. Mm -hmm. And uh, to do that and uh, give a tolerizing strategy at the same time is certainly a prescription for trouble. But, but I think that uh, the, 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 the physicians involved in transplantation are well aware of, of the risk and it can be overcome. Clay. So in, in the old days, we used to think about donor-specific transfusions prior to the transplant. And it strikes me that if, if the transplant were planned, you could do the tolerizing with some antigen from the donor six months ahead of time or, or whenever. I, I totally agree with you, Clay. And, uh, and uh, there are, uh, um, um, you know, it, it, it looks like conventional DST is probably not good enough. And a major theme in, in, in my lab right now is to try and identify cells of donor origin that elicit uh, helpful responses. There, there uh, are strategies that are pretty mature. Uh, Angus Thompson at uh, Pittsburgh is perhaps the leading advocate of a strategy where you take uh, um, immature dendritic cells of donor origin 
and uh, they, they, they get the immune system's attention, but in a way uh, that promotes uh, regulation. And, uh, and uh, Angus is probably the closest of anybody I know to trying to execute a strategy like the one that you're talking about. We have some other ideas, but, but you're, you're, you're right. It's a very attractive strategy. I think that it would probably synergize with the, uh, uh, with the uh, tactics that I I'm, I'm, I'm trying to use, and uh, it's a good idea that has remained dormant because we haven't been able to pro properly identify the right cells and to make sure that these cells, when they go into an inflammatory environment, remain immunosuppressive. A lot of cells in, in the immune system, their phenotype changes when they, they get into an inflamed environment, and that's one of the tactical difficulties. But it, it'll, it'll mature, and I, and I totally agree with you, Clay. I, you know, I believe in this cheesy seesaw diagram uh, is as uh, 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 close to the truth. So I, I don't like to see a lot of activated donor-directed uh, um, tissue-destroying cells. So I think in, 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 in that sense, uh, rejection is not your friend. But the strategy relies totally on the ability to see donor antigen. In that, in that sense, so if we call it as the allograft response, your friend, rather than rejection, I buy into that. You just have to play with the uh, texture in which that recognition takes place. I think we'll uh, bring the hour to a close. Uh, Brian, are there any other It's going to be in the Department of Medicine at uh, noon time. There's going to be some lunch, so if you'd like to collaborate with the team at HUM, please come to the lunch in, in the Department of Medicine at noon time. Yes, thank you. Thank you all.